Hi everyone. I am Dr. James Ahrens, the ADHD author and veterinarian, welcoming you back to my mental chaos. Today I'm exploring inspiration and abandonment, double topics that usually don't jive, but they do in my case. Feeling betrayed by the Almighty when Gail died, I abandoned my Mormon religion. Losing belief in God reset things in my head and realizing my marriage was not really divinely ordained, as Bishop Nielsen suggested in his blessing to me, our marriage vows lost importance as my loss of faith grew. Maybe my too-soon marriage was more an act of immature panic than one of divine planning. In October 1973, I was just 18. Bishop Nielsen, who presided over our wedding a few weeks later, blessed me and Mel separately by summoning the power of the Holy Ghost to look into our futures. We believe this to be a moment of enlightenment where God spoke through his mouthpiece. As I knelt in front of the bishop, he placed his hands on my head and extemporaneously recited a three-page litany of blessings and vague predictions about me. The blessing mentioned my upcoming marriage many times putting it on a full-speed-ahead course to happen. Mel's parents accepted the idea, and Mel was looking forward to it. Deep down, though, I had a problem with the marriage. But I suppressed the doubt, explaining it away as an unfaithful, unmormon-like thought. I agreed to the wedding because my religion and Mel's family supported it. When I asked myself why I was marrying Mel, I replied, because she deserves someone to take care of her. I felt this was the proper thing to do.
After abandoning my church beliefs, I glommed on to my college interactions to find a much-needed sense of security. At USC, I used my religious mantle as a reason to make no friends. UCI was different. Reevaluating both religious and marriage beliefs, I refocused on college, seeking like-minded thinkers. Many were young women seeking to develop a profession in medical science, and I was drawn into new relationships to the dismay of my new wife. Chapter 10 University of California, Irvine Unlike USC established in 1880, UC Irvine was a much newer campus. It was only 10 years old when I went there. The landscaping was sparse, the modern concrete buildings were stark and ugly, and the grounds barren of vegetation. The lecture halls were enormous, like gigantic tiered theaters, and my organic chemistry lectures were in such a venue. The first day of organic chemistry began when Dr. Liu stood on the stage to introduce himself with a thick oriental accent. Then he turned around and wrote what looked like organ itch on the whiteboard. Great, I thought. Besides having a difficult time in understanding the professor's words, I won't be able to decipher his writing either. Dr. Liu continued writing on the whiteboard. Organ itch misery. The note was a joke about organic chemistry. Okay, well, maybe the class will be doable. I fervently hoped. There were well over a hundred students in that auditorium. The labs were smaller, about 24 students with two students at each work table. Looking for a partner, I spied a pretty brunette and opened a conversation. Her name was Patty. She looked like she was about 16 years old. Are you old enough to be in college? I asked her. She promptly pulled out her driver's license and showed me she was 19 years old, one year younger than me. Why are you in college? I asked her. I want to be a veterinarian. Me too. No way. She couldn't believe this. She thought I was coming on to her. I am. I swear to God, I smiled. That commonality formed an immediate comfort zone between us. Mom invited Mel and I to join the rest of the family for Thanksgiving. All seven of the kids were there, along with Mike's new wife, Devone, and Carol's new husband, Randy. Dad wasn't there. He was with his future wife. During dinner, we started discussing things we were learning. I talked about Darwin's observations that helped steer him to his theory of evolution. Darwin noticed as the Industrial Revolution progressed through the years in England, the population of tree moths changed their color from white to black. This phenomenon was in the 1850s. Looking back 150 years, we see this as one of the first instances of the global warming problem. However, at the time, global warming was six generations away from being discovered. Darwin suggested the color change was a result of selective pressure on the moths. Before the Industrial Revolution, there were very few of the black insects. As the industry grew, it spewed tons and tons of black soot from the smokestacks, causing the local trees to change their bark color from white to black. That's how smoky the country became. The blackness of the trees allowed the birds to see the white moth easier, and the birds swooped down to eat the white moths more often than the dark moths. The only insects left to reproduce had darker coloring, and as the dark genes passed to more and more offspring, the entire moth population changed to mostly black. Darwin called this selective pressure natural selection, and believed this was a significant process driving evolution. Brother Rick was quick to reject this idea. He believes there is a god responsible for this mess, that evolution, along with any other ideas proposed by science, is false. He feels these science folks make these ideas up to give themselves a job. In Rick's head, 
The only force dictating the lives of animals and individuals was from God's hand. If the world is created for man, why were there millions of years where dinosaurs ruled the earth? I asked Rick. We haven't been here millions of years, yet the reptiles were. Why did God bring them to earth first? Men and dinosaurs lived together, Jim. He said this with such conviction, as sure as the sun comes up, he was correct. He just knew these things. He didn't need to learn stuff as I did. He thought it was stupid to spend so much time in school. His answer was straightforward. Eventually, man was able to kill all the dinosaurs. How can you think this? I asked him. On the front of the National Enquirer, they show a picture of people walking among dinosaur footprints, he replied. Evidently, Rick felt the Flintstones was a documentary instead of a cartoon. After dessert, Mom asked how many of us were planning on having children. She had three married children and it was time for having babies. But not one of us had any plans for kids. We were all too busy finishing college and getting our careers going. When no one answered, Mom started crying. She told us all how selfish we were and how disappointed she was in her family. The fact was, she just needed to be more patient. She was eventually blessed with almost 20 grandkids. Besides Patty, there were other pre-veterinary students I befriended at UCI. During breaks between classes, bio-sci students congregated in a nearby building where food and drinks were available. Patty and I became friends with Alan, Betsy, Martha, and Ben, who were all trying to get into vet school too. Because there was only one veterinary school in California, the competition was intense. Unlike medical school, where a student could apply to dozens of schools to become a physician, there was only one school available to us, at least in California. Happily and inexplicably, this drove us into a type of camaraderie instead of competition. The pressure to achieve acceptance into vet school seemed to make us less competitive and more supportive and empathetic with one another. At the time I was applying to vet school, there were about 13 applicants per opening for the 114 seats available. I put myself under severe stress because I never had a secondary or backup plan to put into effect if I were to be denied admission into veterinary school. I found a few places at UCI's Med Science Library to study, but I also had a quiet location in my apartment kitchen on the drop leaf table. When finals neared and intensive studying began, I arranged a study schedule for the day. The first hour, I would study for 55 minutes and take a 5-minute break. The second hour, I studied for 50 minutes and took a 10-minute break. The third hour, I studied for 45 minutes and took a 15-minute break. And fourth hour, I studied 40 minutes, took a 20-minute break, and studied for 35 minutes more. Besides time management, I used written questions to keep my mind from wandering and skipping. After reviewing notes from a lecture, I wrote a query for each idea presented, and couldn't cross it from the list until I wrote out an acceptable answer, proving to myself I really, truly understood the concept. The act of writing helped my overactive mind to focus, another of the tricks I found that kept my ADHD brain on task. End of chapter. I faithfully followed the recommends church and society placed on me, but I could not settle myself in my marriage. I was too immature to accept the vows I agreed to abide by. I turned my marriage into a wretched failure. What a shambles. Chapter 11. Gas Station Cashier For extra money, I worked part-time as a cashier at the gas station kitty corner to our apartment. In those days, there was no credit or debit card payment option available at the pump. People pumped their gas, then came up to the window to pay with either cash or a credit card. Once in a while, people stole gas by driving off without paying. After working the station long enough, I developed a feel for when things were not right. 
Non-payers usually filled their vehicle at the gas pump furthest away from the cashier's booth. After the fill-up, these transgressors jumped into their car and sped away. My boss, Larry, kept a thick metal pipe below the counter to throw at cars opting to take their free gas. He was paid a set salary and received a monthly bonus. The bonus, however, was diminished by the amount of loss the station sustained in the month. One night, I was working the evening shift when a Pontiac Firebird Trans Am pulled into the station and stopped to refuel at one of those faraway pumps. I had a feeling about him, and sure enough, after the driver replaced the hose into the gas pump, he jumped into the driver's seat and started the engine. I grabbed the pipe and bolted out the door. By the time he had got the car in gear, I was right there holding the weapon, positioned right behind his Trans Am. As the fellow drove forward, I flung the metal pipe hitting the back window, causing it to disintegrate into thousands of pieces instantly. This guy stole $8 of gasoline for the price of his back window. Another night a car drove up, pumped $1 of gas, and promptly left. The pipe was gone, so I grabbed a big rock from under the counter and heaved it into the air. It sailed about 80 yards. I knew it hit the car when the car's brake lights went on. The driver door opened and the guy yelled at me, What are you doing? You didn't pay for your gas. I sure as shit did, dude. What are you saying? I went back outside to look in front of the booth. Sure enough, I found a $1 bill lying on the concrete. The wind had blown the bill away from my window. I found your dollar. Sorry about that, I yelled. Evidently, it wasn't enough of an apology. Jumping into his car, he turned it around. I hurried inside as the headlights came close. The fellow drove next to the booth, got out of his vehicle, and started walking around my little protective cubicle. Come out here, you fucking asshole, he yelled at me. I didn't respond. I held my breath and puckered my butt. The fellow walked around the building a couple of times waiting to see where I would emerge to confront him. He kept yelling at me to come out. He walked up to the front window again. Come out of the building, you little motherfucker, he yelled at me. I can't, I replied. Why not, he yelled. Because you're going to beat the crap out of me, I replied. That made him even angrier. Slamming his fist against the front window, he caused a large crack to form in the thick plate glass. Between his girlfriend and wife in the car yelling at him to stop the fuss and the fact he broke the window, he finally did calm down, huffed his way back into his car and drove off. I liked working Saturday and Sunday evenings because they were slow. I had more free time to do schoolwork. One Saturday night, I brought my organic chemistry textbook to go through questions at the end of the chapter. The final was coming up on Monday and I needed to master the material. As I went through the questions, I panicked, realizing how ill-prepared I was. It was only 9 p.m. and I was supposed to work until midnight. But because of my panic, I closed the station down, walked across the intersection to the apartment, and resumed my studies at home. After my final exam on Monday, I told Larry what I had done. He laughed and said not to worry, because things were fine. He was a cool boss. During spring quarter of 1976, Patty and I were taking molecular biology together. We studied at her home, where her mom and sisters lived. I still had my job at the gas station and told Mel I was spending study time with fellow students. Just as I did at my apartment, we laid our materials all over the table ready to review our notes. We drank gallons of instant Lipton's iced tea, sweetened with sweet and low. Patty lived across the street from a high school with tennis courts. We spent some of our break time trying to work up a tennis game, although nothing other than a few volleys ever developed from our practices. I would drive home about 10 or 11 p.m. If it was early enough, Mel would be watching TV. I would kiss her and hunker down next to her. If she had already gone to sleep, I just slid into bed as quietly as possible so I wouldn't disturb her. 
In June 1976, spring quarter was drawing to a close, and finals began. I was fine studying alone for most of the courses, but Patty and I felt we needed to get together for the final in molecular biology. Two people could figure these problems out more easily than one person could alone. I told Mel I was going to pull an all-nighter, and not to wait up for me. Patty and I went through the notes and reviewed the questions at the end of each chapter. About two o'clock in the morning, when we finished with the material, I pulled out old tests and started to go through each question. I need to go to bed, Patty told me. I can't think straight anymore. She went off to her bedroom. I finished reviewing the tests about an hour later and went to sleep on the couch in the living room. The exam was 8 the next morning. We woke up at 6.30, got our things, and drove together to UCI in Patty's car. The exam lasted two hours. It was the last final exam for both of us. The spring quarter was finished. Returning to Patty's house, I reviewed the last week in my mind. Any finals week is grueling, the culmination of digesting information dispensed throughout months of classes. The information first needs to be reorganized as important to learn. Next, it needs to be understood and finally pressed into memory, and as the exam deadline nears, fear of failure kicks in big time. This occurs for every course, and there are four or five tests that happen over a few days' time. I refer to this period as the time where my adrenal glands go flat. The stress put on my body during the testing period causes these hormone generators to secrete their epinephrine and cortisone at a sustained rate, then depletion resulting in a hangover effect when the exams are finished. In the aftermath of this intense focus, I was exhausted but incredibly relieved it was over. We drove back to Patty's house after the final, sat in her car, and looked at each other wondering what to do. I'm going to take a shower. Do you want to join me? she asked. I didn't hesitate much before telling her, yes. I do. Although we showered together, I didn't touch her. After we had dressed, I noticed she was glum and pouting. What's wrong? I asked. You don't want me. Oh no, it's not that. I'm not ready to leave Mel, you know, and I need to sort things out with her. Over the school year, I had gotten closer to Patty, and our mutual friends assumed we were dating. I was comfortable with the assumption and did nothing to correct it. I had allowed myself to drift apart from Mel, spending little time in the apartment when she was home. Probably it was more of a push to escape than a drifting apart. I was either studying with Patty or working at the gas station on evenings and Sundays. And I still went out every Saturday with Dr. Seeley. Just as I hid my life with Mel from my school friends, I rarely discussed my school friends with my wife. I was living in different worlds, depending on the time of the week, entirely unconcerned about the collateral emotional damage I was creating. I stayed in touch with Patty after finals because we had another common goal. We needed to take the graduate record exam as another condition of applying to veterinary school. The GRE in biology takes all the information in core biology classes and presents the information through a written test. I began studying for it alone because I was comfortable going through all my old science books and notes. Patty bought a GRE study book and went through the information in the book. We arranged to take the test together. I drove to pick her up, planning our arrival time to be 30 minutes before the exam began but I realized the timing was off as soon as we arrived. Walking towards the test center, both Patty and I got a familiar knot in our stomachs. There must have been a misprint in the test information as the exam had been underway for almost an hour, and this was to be the last GRE test of the year. If we didn't take it now, we wouldn't be able to apply to vet school this year. Luckily, there were other people who received the same wrong information, and a second exam area was set up. Driving home from the exam, we made a plan to drive up to UC Davis at the end of the summer to see our hoped-to-be future ivory tower. 
I told Mel I was going up there to see how I could get into the vet med program at Davis, leaving out incidentals I felt would hurt her. To save money by not checking into hotels, we camped one night at Yosemite, then another night in South Lake Tahoe. From Tahoe, we drove through Sacramento into Davis and stayed out of town at a campground in Puda Creek. Davis was warm and summery. Patty put on a halter top and looked lovely. During this trip, we moved from two separate sleeping bags to a shared one. We toured the veterinary medicine teaching hospital and walked around the UC Davis campus, then headed back home. I told Patty I had to sort things out with Mel. Unfortunately, I never discussed any of it with Mel, growing impatient and short with her instead. When I married her, I promised to take care of her forever, but now I was irritated by the pledge. I felt I shortchanged myself. Each day at college, I ran into women who were growing and disciplining their minds. My wife was working in a dead-end job and not growing at all. Frustrated, I told Patty I needed to work harder on my marriage. But just as I hadn't sorted things out with her, I could not find a way to work harder on my relationship with Mel. It was broken. Mel and I had grown apart, too far apart. I agreed to be part of a future I was too young to understand. I no longer had strong ties with Mel's family or my own. I felt adrift and alone, and getting into vet school was way, way more exciting than trying to work on my plotting marriage. In retrospect, I cannot help but wonder why I jumped into a train wreck marriage at such a young age. I suspect Mel's family gave me a springboard to get away from my childhood home and find my way. I felt a sense of power and security in making all of the decisions for my future. And a married man was an adult, after all. Experience in the real world inexorably chipped away that facade, and although I remained emotionally insecure, my success in school sustained me, and education continued to be my new religion. I came home early one afternoon to find a note on the door. It was from the apartment manager. He needed to see me. As I unlocked and went inside the apartment, I immediately knew why he wanted to see me. The aquarium was empty. During the day, a joint between the glass and the fiberglass wood slipped. There was no water in the aquarium, the fish were dead, and the living room carpet was spongy with water. I was crestfallen. I went to see the manager. He told me the woman under my apartment had called him because it was raining in there. He asked me not to have an aquarium anymore. I said I had no more plans for an aquarium and went back to the apartment. Because we were spending so little time together, Mel and I neglected the housework. The plants on the shelves I put up were dead, the crusted dishes in the sink were piled high, the carpet was dirty as well as soaked, the bathroom was a mess, and a burnt-out light in the hallway had not been replaced. I hoped the manager had not come into the apartment. He probably did, but was kind enough not to chide me on my housekeeping. A few days later, Mel and I met on the stairs leading up to the apartment. I told her what we had was not working, and I needed some time to see what I wanted. Mel began crying and went upstairs to call her mom while I walked back to the garage and drove away in the Toyota. End of chapter. Places from a dream that never brings them back.
this blue train Count the burning bridges Trailing this rusty red As our back pages Scattering the dust we left Like a pearl necklace Falling from around my You can follow the story on my blog, jeadvm.com. I've included pictures, too. Once on my blog's front page, go to the menu, pick My Books, and click on Fear of Failure. The entire autobiography can be purchased as an old-fashioned paper book or an e-book, as well as an 11-disc audiobook set or can be downloaded from the audiobook site ACX. More details are on my website, jeadvm.com. I'll be back next week with another blog. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.